As Gabrielle said, Mark chapter 7, verse 24 through 33, uh, 30, 24 through 30. And this is a story of an encounter with Jesus, praying that today some of us would also have that same encounter with Jesus. But for the time being, I'm just going to start reading in 24, give you a second to get there in your Bibles, your devices. And this is right after a wild time on the land of Gennesaret. And it starts by saying this, verse 24. And from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, and yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile. Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And the woman went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon God. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder, as we just kind of pause for a moment, in about six verses that are loaded with compassion, loaded with controversy, loaded with tension and difficulty and challenge, loaded with love and grace. If at the very beginning of this passage, if anyone in this room felt a sense of resonance with what I imagine, not even the woman, like before we get to the Syrophoenician woman, the crowds back at the land of Gennesaret, where it says, if you were here the uh, last few weeks, Jesus has just kind of been healing and casting out demons. He's speaking to the Pharisees, rebuking them for their uh, clinging to their traditions instead of the heart of God, so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, in verse 24, it says, he arose and went away to a place called Tyre and Sidon. On the other side, entered a house and didn't want anybody to know about it. This is like the human side of Jesus, right? He needs a break. He needs a, <laughs> he needs a cat nap. He needs a power nap. And so he leaves unbelievable amounts of ministry to take a break. Now, we've spoken plenty over the years about Sabbath rest and about replenishment and how, about how God actually calls us to rest. I'm not talking about that particular viewpoint. I'm talking about what it must have felt to be in the land of Gennesaret when that happened. Put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's just chilling in Gennesaret and they're like, oh, I can't wait to meet, meet Jesus today. I've been waiting all week to meet Jesus and he's gone. The person who's like, ah, oh, Jesus, I really needed you to, to encounter my uncle who's kind of been falling away from the faith, or my, my, uh, my mother who's got a cold, or I've just been really having a difficult time. I have a really difficult time with my spirituality, and I heard you were in the area, and I've been waiting all of this time to come meet you, and he's gone. I wonder if there were anyone in that crowd who were disappointed 
For these are those moments where it feels like God's face is hidden from us. You might resonate with this. Sometimes in our lives, God is really loud. He's really visible. We see that in the Bible, right? Sometimes God is loud. Sometimes God shows up with authority and power and visible expression. Sometimes he rebukes the Egyptians for his people with plagues. Other times he parts the Red Sea so the whole world can see that there is a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Other times he speaks with power, throwing down fire from heaven as with Elijah. Sometimes God is loud and visible and extraordinarily intense. Other times it's quiet. Like when King David, the anointed one of God, is bouncing from cave to cave, being chased by a tyrannical and mad king for his life, and it seems like God is silent. Like Elijah sitting there on the rock, uh, unable to eat, unable to speak, running for his life, and there's seemingly nothing. You ever feel that way? Maybe, maybe for you, God has been loud at certain points in your life, like when you first encountered Jesus for the first time and it was like a lightning bolt just going straight into your heart and you're opening up the Bible and the words were jumping off the page and you were praying and your prayers were, were getting answered and relationship was awesome and church had no drama and just everything was wonderful and it was like God was in the midst of you. And maybe there's other times where it's like the spiritual light turns off. You've got these questions and nobody's answering them. And you pray and nobody's answering. And you read the Bible and the words just seem to fall off the page onto the floor where you're sitting. You're asking God for help, but nobody's answering. Sometimes God is loud. But isn't it also true that sometimes it feels like his face is hidden? And we may be tempted to think in those moments that God is not around, but his word is unequivocally, unabashedly honest that he'll never leave us or forsake us. It just feels like he's not there. And we may be tempted to think that God is not close, that he's left, that he forgot about us, that he abandoned us even. But it could, be so, could it be something else? Could it be that we just have a new opportunity to listen more intently than we were before. Perhaps this is a new opportunity to dive deeper, to hear his voice and to see him more clearly. When God's face seems hidden from us, those are the moments, here's my second point, where desperation seems to be the very thing that finds him. This is where I wanna start talking about this Syrophoenician woman. In the last line of Mark chapter 7, verse 24, after it says, from there Jesus rose, went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, leaving ministry to catch a break. He enters a house, doesn't want anyone to know, comma, yet he could not be hidden. <laughs> there was a woman there, and she heard about this guy. It says, immediately, Mark's favorite word, uses it about 52 times in the Gospel of Mark. Immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him. 
and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. I want you to pause for a moment and just look at the scene. Up until this point, Jesus has been surrounded by crowds. A lot of the people in those crowds are after something. They want Jesus. Some of them like his fancy sermons. He tells really enticing parables. Others like what he does with demons, the supernatural displays of God's power. For still others, they might not be able to put their finger on it, but they're strangely attracted to him. The Gospel of Mark will tell us, somewhere around, I think it's got, uh, John, uh, excuse me, Gospel of John, chapter 7, when Jesus starts challenging those very people, they all leave. Most of them will leave, including his half-brother, Andrew and James. Kind of giving us a picture of what it's like to follow Jesus. There's a lot of enticing things about Jesus, aren't there? From a cursory glance, he seems like a pretty cool guy. So you start spending enough time with him, and then he challenges some of the idols in our lives. He says, oh, but this thing that you're hiding right there, I want to get rid of that. This little thing right here that you're clinging to, I want to get rid of that. And that's when it gets challenging. Now, over and against the crowds, I want you to see this woman. She's not after a fancy sermon. She is at the end of herself with absolutely nowhere else to turn. She heard of this Jesus and she found him. And it's as if this reel is playing in the back of her head. I need to get to Jesus at all costs. This is a different type of approach to Jesus than what you would mostly see in the crowds of that day. They're looking to be enticed. They want some free bread. They want a parable that will excite them for the day. They want something to change in their lives. Yes, maybe. They might even want healing for a loved one or even for themselves. But this is a different level of desperation. Now, here's the problem. She's from Tyre. And since Tyre was close to Judea, she knew almost certainly knew all the protocols in place that would have kept a person like her away from a rabbi like Jesus. I don't need to tell you them. Mark actually makes sure to cram that last sentence with all of the disqualifiers that surround her. Listen to this. She's a Phoenician. She's a Gentile. She's a pagan. She's a woman. And her daughter had an unclean spirit. In the first century, all disqualifications for approaching a rabbi. There's just no possible way that she could have gotten close to a person like that. She was disqualified in every way from approaching, but she doesn't care. I almost wonder if her situation was different. If she was just there and tired and she just heard through the grapevine, you know, through Twitter or whatever, she's like, oh, I hear Jesus is around the corner. I'm going to go check him out and maybe hear a sermon. I wonder if all of those barriers would have just kept her at bay. But she's not after any of those things. She's desperate. 
She breaks all of the barriers in order to get to Jesus at all costs. So one author says, there's different people in life. Sometimes you have cowards, other times you have heroes, and everything in between. And then there's parents. Parents don't even fit on that spectrum because once their child is at stake, all of that rationality flies out the window and all they care about is taking care of their kid. This is a parent. It doesn't even seem like she has the wherewithal or even the time to think through all of the things that she, all of the rules that she's breaking. All she seems to care about in that moment, I gotta get my daughter to Jesus. And she begs Jesus, verse 26, to cast the demon out of her daughter. And now we read one of the most troubling statements in the gospel. Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Oof. Have you ever... Have you ever run into something into the Bible that was so difficult to understand that you had a hard time reconciling yourself to it? When I grew up, I grew up in children's church. I think that's what they called it at the time. And we used to get these Bibles. They had the pictures in them, and they were children's Bibles, and they had all of these stories in the Bible, but they tended to be all of the good stories. You know what I'm talking about? David and Goliath, Esther, like all of the stuff that ended happily. And then I got like an adult Bible and saw, man, there's like a lot of crazy stuff in this thing. There's a lot of, there's a lot of bad endings. Have you ever looked through the Bible and found some bad endings? Have you ever gotten to a place in your own spirituality where you had a hard time making sense of your own faith? Like, you love Jesus, you know enough about Jesus to love him, but there's just this other stuff, beliefs, doctrines, behaviors, things people, Christians in your life said, maybe even the church itself, that you're like, ah, I can't, I can't reconcile myself to this. This is weird or hard. I want to throw two things your way as you process through that. One is it's okay to process through that stuff. And here's why, and here's what I've come to appreciate about the Bible, as opposed to the, the nursery school versions of the Bible, is that we live in a real world with real life, and the Bible doesn't skip around that. What we're seeing in this thing is the sometimes nasty and tragic drama of human people, and God stepping into that mess. And so when you read it, there's some good endings. There's also a lot of messes, right? I appreciate that. Here's the second thing. I think it's good to ask these questions, to invite the Holy Spirit into your doubt and into your struggle and ask those questions. <clears throat> Which I think is sometimes a hard thing to do in our evangelical tradition. In our tradition, we like answers. We like right answers. And I think when we run across passages like this, like Jesus, it looks like on the surface that he says to this woman whose daughter has a demon, like, nah, 
I'm busy plus dog. Like, does he call her a dog? That's, that's harsh. I think there needs to be space to ask those questions in the presence of the Holy Spirit in Christian community to say, God, why would you do this? And yet I trust you. To open up space for that. And here's why. You're gonna wrestle through it at some point in your life. And if God is big enough to die on the cross for our sins and to rise again, defeating the devil, our sin in the grave, I think he can handle some of our questions, amen? And this is where I think the source of our courage and bravery to ask those types of questions should come from. If God is who he says he is, and if he's been around longer than you and I, he can certainly answer and deal with some of the difficult questions that we have. Can I get an amen to something? He can handle our doubts. He ain't afraid of your doubts. He ain't afraid of the devil. He ain't afraid of death. He ain't afraid of injustice. He ain't afraid of any of that stuff. He certainly isn't afraid of our questions, so we should ask them. Now, let's get back to this very difficult response by Jesus, a very controversial one. It seems like Jesus is brushing this woman off and actually calling her a dog. Now, there is a full spectrum of things that people have said about this. The one that seems to make the most sense is that Jesus is telling a parable to explain a principle to this woman. And that is that his mission does not yet include Gentiles. This is what I think he's saying. His mission does not yet include Gentiles. We see this in his own words. We see that in the disciples that he came first. In fact, in the parallel account, Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, he actually says, to the woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So his mission does not yet include the broader world. He came to the household of Israel, but that plan is, is in the works. We see that after he rises from the dead, he will tell his disciples, okay, now you go to the ends of the earth. And Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 would say, I'm not ashamed of the, uh, the gospel for it is the power of God of salvation to all who believe first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. When he speaks about a household and dogs at the table, he's using a parable that was very common in the Old Testament to describe Israel. He was saying, hey, this is my family by blood, and I came to them, and I'm supposed to put food on the table, if I can extend that analogy. And it's not right for me to share that food with people that aren't at the table yet. If I could summarize what Jesus is saying, even though he doesn't mince words, and it seems to our modern sensibilities to be very harsh, it sounds like he's basically saying, hey, lady, I know you need me, but I have a plan, and I gotta stick to the plan. Then the woman does something astonishing. She agrees with him. She doesn't just agree with him, but she steps into the parable that Jesus just used to teach her and then uses that same parable to appeal to his mercy. 
It says in verse 28, she answered him saying, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. If I could summarize that section of the scriptures right there, it was as if the woman bounced back with a a one-liner saying, Jesus, I know there's more than enough at your table. (laughs) The bravery of this person. A Syrophoenician woman with an unclean child out of her element in full-blown desperation walks up to Jesus, uses the language of his own parable as if to say, I understand, Lord. I understand that you're the Messiah of the Jewish people. I understand that you have a mission. I'm okay with that. I submit to that. But I know you got a lot of food on that table, and I need some right now. This is unbelievable, you guys. Tim Keller reports that this kind of assertiveness is foreign to our American battle on the basis of our personal rights. In other words, we can assert ourselves too, but we generally only know how to assert ourselves and to be courageous and brave on the basis of what's owed us. That's the only way we know how to relate to one another, is through leverage. This is a rightless assertiveness. Bold face assertion from someone who knows their own plight. It's an appeal to grace. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my own goodness. It's as if she's saying, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. You got a big table, Lord. And I know that you're gonna do this. I know you have a plan. I know that you're gonna save the world. I know that's gonna happen later, but my daughter needs it right now. Please. Mark says, actually, Jesus says, for this statement. I love that. Not what she did, not what she believed, not her past, not her history, for the words that she just said. He stops what he's doing, stops midstream in the middle of a cosmic plan sent to him by his father to say, demon be gone. Doesn't even say it, just happens, I love that. What I think this means when it says for this statement, her words, is that she actually understood Jesus' parable. This might be the first person in the book of Mark who actually understood one of Jesus' parables. This is a theme, right? You read through the Gospels and you hear over and over the disciples didn't understand his parable. And I think in the Gospel of Matthew, it actually says that he tells parables to confuse people (laughs) because they keep flocking to him for his miracles, for his popular teaching, and so he speaks about the kingdom in parables. And the disciples continue to fail to understand. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, after he feeds the 5,000, it says right after that, as he's speaking about the leaven of the Pharisees, they still didn't get what he was saying about the bread. 
And the first person, I think, from my vantage point, the first person to understand one of Jesus' parables is a Phoenician Gentile pagan woman with a daughter who had an unclean spirit who had no business of being in the presence of God. And it says for this statement, Jesus says, you may go your way. I wonder, this is one of those scenes in the Bible where I wish I could be a fly on the wall just to see Jesus' face. Like, did he just, did he just trip out? Not even Peter was this quick. What we see in this is that one prayer from a desperate person can move the hand of the Almighty God. And sometimes God's face is hidden from us, feels hidden from us, I should say. But desperate hearts move him. So the question for us today is not, do you pray good? Do you sing good? Do you do church good? Have you dotted the I's and crossed the T's? And do you have your religious checklist in order? And are you a good Christian? Those seem to be the wrong question in the economy of God. So are questions faulty that sound like this. Is this part of the plan? Or is this the way we normally do things? But the better and truer questions seem to be, are we desperate enough to chase after Jesus at all costs? Do we want him that bad? And are we willing to chase him on the basis of his love and mercy, not our own? I want to close with a passage from Revelation. We went through Revelation a couple times last year. And there was a, a there was a excerpt in Revelation chapter 3 when Jesus is speaking to the church that kind of has stuck with me through this. And it's the church in Laodicea. Now, these are not mythical places. Like, these are, these are actual churches in Asia Minor that Jesus was speaking to in the first century. And I want you to hear the very end of this. But to get through it, we got to go through a, a few lines here. So listen to this. It says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this. And this is Jesus speaking. The words of the amen. That's his nickname. The faithful and true witness. The beginning of God's creation. He says this, Jesus speaking, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. But would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. When I see that, I see the example of the woman and the crowds from the, the, uh, from the field of Gennesaret. Not really fitting in between cold or hot, just kind of like, yeah, this guy's awesome. And then there's this woman who's like, I have to get to this man at all costs. He goes on to say, for you say I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That line sticks out to me because it's almost as if Jesus is telling us, 
that a fairly good church is a fairly unhealthy church. Because if you're good enough to not need anything, you can easily begin to coast on whatever wheels you had spinning and fail to see the deep and tremendous need inside of you for Jesus Christ. Isn't that what he says to an actual church here? He says, because you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, you are failing to see the wretchedness, pitiable poverty, blindness, and nakedness that is underneath the surface. It's almost like he's saying, I, I wish you were either desperate or, or just being completely renewed, but good is actually a pretty dangerous spot because it's at that moment that you start to depend upon yourself and lose sight of me. Oh, what would move us into the same direction as the Syrio-Phoenician woman? He goes on to say, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be actually rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you can see those whom I love I reprove and I discipline so be zealous and repent now listen to this line where he says behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me those the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Growing up, I used to think this was an evangelistic verse. That Jesus was knocking on the door of people's hearts that didn't know him. And then I read the whole passage. And it's a church. It's a scene where Jesus is knocking on the door of the church. And this is a, that's a very uncomfortable scene for me because Jesus is pictured on the outside of the church knocking. Now, I'm not saying that that's the state of the church or even ours. I am saying that this should always be a wake-up call. A moment, perhaps even an opportunity to see where we've come from and where we are now, but also where God wants to take us and to renew that ancient desire that was placed inside of us, just like that woman. I want more of you at any cost, Jesus. Jesus, centuries ago, stands on the outside of the church in Laodicea, knocking, requesting to be let in, making available a bounty on his table. It says he wants to come in and dine with them. He's knocking on the outside of this church saying, I want to come in to your church and eat. Try tip with you, right? Let me in. Could the church today be in the same place? I think that's always a worthy question for us to be asking. Could we be in the same place? Could I be in the same place. Knowing that we can ask questions like that without shame, guilt, or fear, because God is, after all, a God who has plenty of food on the table.
and he loves you. And he wants the best for you. Today, between 4 o'clock and 6 o'clock in this building, we're going to come back here as we've been sharing with you. Listen again to what the Holy Spirit would say to this church. To try to do what this woman was doing centuries ago. To be open and honest before God, maybe even a little bold. And to collectively hear from the Holy Spirit. What's next for Reality Santa Barbara? But right now, let's not think about what's next for Reality Santa Barbara. Let's think about what's next for each of us. Because God doesn't just love the church collectively, although very true. He loves you personally. Died on the cross to forgive you of your sins, rose again to give you new life, and is still in mad pursuit of you even if right now you can't feel him or hear him. So I'm gonna ask Robert to come up as we respond in song and prayer and communion. I wanna invite you in any way that it takes for you to posture uh, posture yourself to be able to receive from God. For some of you, maybe it just means sitting where you're at. For others, maybe kneeling in front of your chair. Still for others, standing, lifting your hands, whatever it takes. Let's remember this woman, whatever it takes to get before God. That's what I want and that's what I need right now. We have communion to both sides of the building in the front, also outside for those of us that are watching in the, uh, in the parking lot. And I'm gonna put a prayer up on the screen for you. And this is actually an old prayer. I think it's about 500 years old. Millions of people have prayed it. It's from the Book of Common Prayer. And it was designed after the story that we just read. And it was designed to be taken into communion. And it says this. We do not presume to come to this, your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We're not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. So brothers and sisters, when you take of the bread and the cup, take it to receive mercy, which is waiting for you. His mercies are new every morning.